See, Paul is pointing out a problem with their logic. If, if the resurrection, if resurrection in general can't happen, then Jesus couldn't have been resurrected. After all, Jesus is human just as they were. And what Paul is trying to make a point about and what he's about to make a case for is the importance of Jesus' resurrection. Not just as something that is amazing and astounding, but as something that has incredible, profound implications in the life of a believer. Because as you walk through the world, you see things that are amazing and astounding all the time. The Grand Canyon is amazing and astounding, but the Grand Canyon has no bearing on my life. Its existence does not determine my eternal existence, but the resurrection of Christ does. I think it's a fair question to ask, what is the big deal? Why is it so important that Jesus rose from the dead? Like, isn't it enough that, that Jesus was a kind and nice man, that he always did the right thing, that, that he was a wise and eloquent teacher, he, he always helped the needy, he always advocated for the marginalized, he brought healing to the hurting. Like, isn't that enough to have a one-of-a-kind, all-around nice guy, a worthy inspiration to strive toward? Like, isn't that enough to, to base a religion off of? Look at what Paul would say in response to that, verses 14 through 19. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have, been, who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we've got some very serious problems. We've got problems in the church. We've got practical problems in our own lives. We, we've got eternal problems, both for us and for those who have professed Christ and have already died. Here's a rundown of the problems as Paul sees it. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if he was just a nice guy, he was a good leader, and he existed solely as like an exemplary human role model who then died and then decomposed into the ground, then Paul's preaching, his ministry, his entire life's work is for nothing. And it's not only for nothing. Paul and the other apostles, they're actively misrepresenting God. They're perpetuating blasphemous heresies about the creator of all things. And that's definitely not a place you want to find yourself in. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then all those who put their trust and their hope in Christ are absolutely wrong, and they're still eternally condemned in their sin. And those who believed in Christ and those who have since died are not awaiting some glorious resurrection into eternal life with Christ. Like, they've perished. They're dead permanently forever. See, Jesus rising from the dead is not just a big deal physically and scientifically, which it is, but it is the basis upon which our entire Christian faith rests upon. Like, we can't overstate this fact which is what Paul is clearly trying to point out here. The Christian faith does not hinge upon whether or not Jesus was a nice guy or a good teacher, which he was. And the Christian faith does not rest upon whether or not Jesus was able to walk on water or that he miraculously fed thousands of people with five loaves of bread and two fish, which he did. The church is not built. It is not built upon whether or not Jesus was simply crucified, which he was. But a lot of other people also were crucified. 
But everything for the Christian hinges upon whether or not he came back to life after being crucified. See, the Christian faith rests on the fact that Christ was raised from the dead because everything that Jesus set out to accomplish is confirmed in his resurrection or completely dismissed in his failure to rise again. If Jesus did not come back to life, then he would have been a liar, and the word of God would be a sham. Jesus would not have just gone away for a little while and come back to us like he said he would. He would have actually left us as orphans despite promising otherwise. He wouldn't have rebuilt the temple of his body that was torn down in the way that he said and promised that he would. He wouldn't actually be going to prepare a room for us in his father's house where we could experience eternal fellowship with him and his father. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, we wouldn't actually be able to see the father through him like he said that we could. We couldn't even have access to the Father at all. If Jesus died but wasn't resurrected, like our sorrow would never turn to joy. The, the world would not be overcome. Our sin would not be atoned for, and we would not be reconciled to God, and the sacrificial Passover lamb would just be another dead lamb. If Jesus failed to come back to life, the hope we have as Christians would be a great delusion. The promises we believe and trust would be a grand deception. Like our tears would never be wiped away. No redemption for suffering, no justice for our injustices, no healing for our brokenness, and no joy in the morning. As Paul says in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then this, all of this, everything that we are doing is for nothing. We are simply just having this great and hopeless delusional waste of time all together on a Sunday morning. And if that's true, then we should be pitied by the world because we have bought into a lie and we have wasted our lives. But thank God that that is not the case. Look at what Paul says next in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is risen. He is risen I'm going to try that again because that's a little weak. He is risen. He is risen On Easter, we pay special attention to the fact that the absolute impossible happened, that something that was completely dead became completely alive. Jesus did not just resurrect in some ethereal way. It's not like he showed up in some sort of spirit form like grandma from Moana, okay? The tomb was empty. And when Jesus showed up to say hi to his disciples, they reached out and they touched his hands. And his hands weren't decomposing flesh. He wasn't like a zombie Jesus, a shell and a shadow of his former self. He was fully him. He was restored. He was made new. And then he sat down and proceeded to have breakfast with his disciples. And what's even more incredible than this biologically and scientifically impossible miracle taking place is what it means for us, Mercy House. So if you were here with us on Good Friday, then you remember that we talked about how Jesus was potentially the Passover lamb that would atone for our sin. And I say potentially because there is a point in time on Good Friday when we are unsure. Because it's one thing to sit at a Seder dinner, to break the bread, and to pick up the cup, 
and to institute the new covenant and, and to call himself the sacrificial lamb that would be the once and for all penal substitutionary atonement that would take our sin upon him and make us right with God. But it's a whole other thing to actually do it. It's a whole other thing to actually die, to be received then as the true and better Passover lamb that was able to fully absorb the wrath of God, to then defeat death, and then to come back in the flesh and say, I told you that I could do it. I told you that I would finish what I started, that I'd be able to fulfill the promises that I and my father made to all of you. Jesus did both of those things. He talked the talk, and then he walked the walk. His resurrection is the reassurance that everything we believe in, everything we read in Scripture is actually true. It's the moment for the disciples when they realize that what they thought at the moment was the greatest deception and defeat as they watched Jesus die on the cross, suffocating slowly. It was actually, in reality, the most epic and heroic act of victory that creation had ever seen. Christ's resurrection means that he wasn't kidding when he said, I'll be right back. In fact, he would never leave us as orphans, even when sometimes it feels like he has. That believing in him is worth it. Consider for a second that the disciples who followed Jesus, they went all in. They forfeited careers. They said goodbye to their families. They risked everything. They wagered everything because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And then Jesus' resurrection means that they made the right decision. Like, can you imagine the joy and the relief when they saw Jesus? And they're learning that, that they sacrificed everything and that it wasn't in vain, that they didn't just throw it all away and forsake their lives and their families and everything they had for nothing. Some of us in this room have gone all in. Like you are sold out for the gospel. And some of us on our hardest days, I think, wonder, is this bet worth it? Because as some of us, as we look around in our lives, like things might not be looking too great at this moment. And circumstantially, things aren't looking like we're on the winning side of a bet. And some of us have given up everything we have. Some of us have suffered greatly. And some of us, and I speak specifically to those who are ministers of the gospel in this room. Like, we have toiled and we have labored. We have struggled, struggled through the muck and the mire, and we've carried burdens that at times feel completely unbearable, and we spend our days serving and being exhausted and our nights just restless and weeping, and we have wondered in our heart of hearts, is it worth it, God? Well, let me tell you right now, to you who are weary and wondering, those of you who are tired and struggling to persevere in your faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a clear and definitive affirmation of, yes, it is completely worth it to continue. Like, listen to me, Christian, your faith is not in vain. Your, your toiling is not meaningless. You are not to be pitied. You're not just deceiving yourself, and you're not just striving to follow Jesus with everything you have for nothing. If the resurrection confirms that Jesus is who he said he was, and if it confirms that the things that he said he would do, he would actually do, then Jesus is a treasure that is worth the loss of all things to be able to have. Every cent 
that you have invested, every second that you have sacrificed, every ounce of hurt or struggle that you've endured for the sake of Christ and the gospel is absolutely worth it, and you will be returned a trillion-fold. I'm sorry, that's inaccurate. The return is actually infinite-fold, because what you get in return is God, and God is infinite in value. And some of the Corinthians, they didn't live with this truth in mind. They were living as though their faith was merely something that just helped them get through their toughest days, or that made them feel a little bit better when things are hard, kind of like a personal therapeutic device to get them through life. They're missing out on a glorious and epic reality that there was way more to their existence than the blink-of-an-eye experience of life on this broken world. They thought that their death was the end of the road for them. What Paul is saying here is actually the starting line for their eternal life with God. Look at what Paul says in verses 12 through 23. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. What Paul is saying is that Jesus is the true and better Adam. So in the same way that Adam introduced death into this world, thanks for that contribution, Adam, Jesus brings an opportunity for life into the world. And this isn't like a make-your-life-here-on-earth-better gospel. This is in reference to an eternal, forever and ever, never-ending life. And Paul's verbiage is beautifully poetic and very epic here. It's a similar structure to something like this. You could say that as the sun sets to bring us night, so the sun rising will bring us light and day. And what he's doing is he's cementing the inevitability of our eternal life. Not just as some vague mystical concept that we can't access, but as a solid, verifiable truth that you could set your clock to. So as sure as death comes from Adam, which it did, so we who belong to Christ shall be made alive forever with him. Now there's an ordering to all of this, and that's what Paul begins to explain in verse 23. The reality is that we're not all resurrected quite yet. We're still here. There's a sequence of events that play out, which helps the Corinthians and us understand how we ought to live in this pre-resurrected moment of our lives. Verse 23 says, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Paul's saying, make no mistake, those of us who belong to Christ will be resurrected to experience eternal life. And Christ's resurrection was the first fruits. And so this is reference to the first fruits of a crop coming in from a harvest. And what that would indicate is that, hey, this crop is healthy. It survived the winter. The conditions were just right. And by the grace of God, these first fruits are a sign that much, 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 much more is about to come. But what do we do now? Are we just kind of biding our time until we die and get to experience this incredible resurrection ourselves? Well, let's read these last verses and finish up for the, for the morning. Verse 24 through 28. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things under subjection under him, that God may be all in all. A mentor of mine would often say that the healthiest thing that a Christian can do is to keep the end in mind. And one of the things you learn when, they, when you're at driving school is they tell you to aim high. If you're driving on the road, you look up at the horizon, you're not just looking at the inches of road right in front of you. And this is to help you have a little bit of perspective on the road as you drive. Athletes will tell you as you're training and, and persevering through the hardships of, of, of trying to become a better athlete, they'll say to visualize the finish line and to imagine raising up that trophy. And Paul does something very similar for the Corinthians who are struggling to live in this world and, and they're awaiting their resurrection. It gives them a glimpse of the end goal of everything. And the picture that we see is that Jesus will bring absolute justice as he puts all of his enemies under his feet. Jesus will bring about absolute peace when all of the opposing authorities and powers which vie for our worship or, or crush us are going to be completely destroyed. And Jesus will completely defeat death, which is the greatest power that Satan has over us once and for all. Jesus will then deliver his people fully redeemed, fully restored to his Father. And then finally, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the church together will experience perfect unity all together and beautiful fellowship forever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen. That's the end goal. That's what we're working toward. This is not some fairy tale or fable. Like This is the Christian end game. This is what God is moving everything toward. And if we believe, and if we remember regularly that this is our inevitable destination, well, I think then my mentor was right. That one of the healthiest things that we can do for ourselves as Christians is to keep the end in mind. When we don't keep the end in mind, it leads to all sorts of unhealthiness in our own lives. We struggle unhealthily in our experiences of, of unfairness and injustices done to us and to others in the world when we don't believe or remember that God will bring ultimate justice to all of creation. And we struggle unhealthily in the hurt and the pain that we've experienced or that we've even inflicted on others when we don't believe and remember that God is going to bring complete healing and reconciliation to every tear that's ever been shed. And we struggle unhealthily in our own sin and brokenness if we don't believe and remember that we will be presented fully washed, fully, fully sanctified, and fully justified before God. We as Christians struggle unhealthily in just living life because we don't believe or remember that Jesus will defeat death. But that's the primary thing that we're here today celebrating together. And it's what Paul is celebrating in these verses and look, I don't know each and every one of you. I haven't met each and every one of you. But what I know is that you know that life is hard sometimes. And that sometimes the days are long, sometimes the nights are cold, and you're not sure if what you're experiencing in life is a trial or some sort of extreme trauma. You don't know how to work those two things out. And I know that many of us here this morning feel the weight of life. 
And we might identify with the mood of the, the darkness and the gloom of Good Friday as Jesus is lying, and, or, I'm sorry, is hung lifeless on the cross. But we're all here today to set something very straight. Jesus is no longer on that cross. And the tomb is empty. The song we just sung, like the stone has been rolled away. And, and if you who are dead in your sin, and if you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, and you rest in his resurrection, then you have been made alive together with him. And so an exhortation for you is to not live as though you're dead. Like you are alive in Christ. And all the promises of God and the incredible, incredible benefits of the gospel and all the assurances that we hear from Christ, they are all confirmed and can be trusted with the resurrection of our Lord, King Jesus Christ. He is risen. He is risen On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Jesus did that knowing what laid before him and the great cost that would need to be paid in order to become the sacrificial lamb. He endured the cross. He, he never strayed away from his mission. And that mission was to purchase with his life our resurrection, and our eternal union with him. If you're not a Christian and you're joining us this morning, I'm so glad that you're here with us. This, invita this invitation to, to the end game has your name on it, and you are invited, and just like with any gift, like there's nothing that you need to do. There's, there's no penance that you need to pay or deed that you need to do. God's grace is received by faith and trust in him. This is how important the resurrection is. We see in Romans 10, 9, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Receiving God's grace is as simple as confessing with your mouth that, man, Jesus is God. And then believing in your heart that Jesus accomplished this miraculous feat of resurrection that we're talking about this morning. And so I want to invite you to do that this morning. And if you do, we encourage you, come talk to someone on staff. We'll have some necklaces that indicate that. And you can also fill out some information on a card because we'd love to celebrate with you and talk with you and pray for you. If you're just visiting us this week, I'm really glad that you're here. I want to invite you to consider coming back and joining us for worship next Sunday. It's not always as loud as it was earlier. It was pretty loud. We can just admit it, right? It was loud. I was sitting up front. It was very loud for me, just me. But we do want to invite you to come. You're always welcome here. Mercy House, my brothers and my sisters, I just, I pray that you would be encouraged this morning. I know that it, we can kind of joke about some of the people here um, not being here next week. We don't know. There's so many visitors here. But for those of you who, who come here regularly, be encouraged. Um, if you need hope, and God knows that I do. Like, this is where the greatest source of hope is. And it's not only available on Easter. So as you take communion, remember the promises of God are all true and trustworthy. That the cost of following Jesus is absolutely worth it. And 
that you don't have to live as though you're dead, as though this is the only life that there is, but to lift your eyes and to behold the empty cross, knowing that the same fate of resurrection and eternal life awaits you. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that you did it. You accomplished what you said you would. You made a people for yourself, and you continue to call people to yourself. God, we confess that sometimes it's difficult to experience the joy of our salvation and the joy of your resurrection. But God, I thank you that it happened. I thank you that you will keep us until the end. I thank you that there are people here who, for the first time, might be experiencing this joy. And for others who have been in the church for many years and have experienced pain and hurt, Lord, I pray that they would experience the joy of your resurrection in a new and a profound way. God, we need it. We need the hope of your resurrection and your life to continue to persevere in this world. And so, God, I pray that you would do that in our hearts. Lord, I pray that as we reflect on what has happened 2,000 years ago, that that would result in joy and singing and praise of you. I pray that you would receive this praise this morning, God. Lord, thank you for the people that are here. Thank you for your people. Father, we love you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.